Hope Church. Open up to Romans chapter 8. If you have uh, not been here before and this is your first time, I'm pleased to, to see you, at least from a distance. I hope we get to uh, chat a little bit more, a little bit uh, later on after our service. But our time together lately has been in Romans chapter 8. We've been here for, for two weeks, two sermons so far. We've gone from verse 1 through to verse 11. And the big themes have been that since we are in Christ, and that is the assumption that, that those who come to the, uh, this chapter and those who have gone through the, the journey that it has been through, the whole uh, uh, theological path of Romans so far are those who knew themselves sinners, condemned by God's law, placed their faith in Christ who died for us under God's law and now are considered as those at peace with God, under His grace, children of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. So verse 1 through 11 has so far told us two important things. Firstly, I am not condemned for my sin, but I am instead righteous. And secondly, that I am no longer in this bondage of this relationship to the, to the sinful world and my own soul called the flesh. I'm no longer in bondage to my old self, my old nature, under the flesh, but I am now what Paul calls in the spirit which also includes being filled by the Holy Spirit of God. Those are the, the two things that we've looked at so far. The technical theological terms is to be, in verse 1, look at Romans 8 verse 1, to be under no legal condemnation anymore, to have that verdict reversed for us is technically what we call justification that we've been declared righteous because Jesus' righteousness on his record was put and imputed and reckoned and accounted into my legal account before God. That's justification. But then secondly, we are also uh, uh, in the spiritual realm. We're alive to the spirit. This is the language of regeneration. We're new creatures. These are, these are two twin parallel realities. One is my legal verdict in heaven. I'm justified on God's books. The other is my experience in who I am that we were calling existential realities last week. That's a, that I am now a new being and also that the Holy Spirit indwells me. These are the, the, the two things that have already been covered by last week and uh, 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 over the last two weeks. So we come to this recognition that sin then, if you're a justified person who God has forgiven and declared righteous, it does not mean that you're a, your every experience of your life in this world is that you will be righteous, but you are never without the verdict of righteous. That is to say that yes, you have the flesh still about you, still tainting what you do, still uh, affecting how you think, how you feel, how you uh, 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 live and breathe. Yes, the flesh is still affecting you, but it does not affect your legal verdict in heaven. And secondly, even though you still have this thing called the flesh, uh, sinful tendencies and sinful desires and, and things that you seek to do, you are still in the flesh in that sense. You have the flesh and yet you have a more powerful force at work in you. That's what we saw last week. Yes, you were in the flesh. Uh, sorry, ra rather. Yes, you were in the spirit, but you are still affected by you are still affected by the flesh, but do not think of them as equal opposite realities. Now that you are in the, in the Spirit, I've got to get that right. Now that you are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you, the spiritual power that verse 11 says is the power of resurrection. 
The Spirit who resurrected Jesus is now in you, bringing life and radiating holiness and life into your life, even though you still have the mortal and, yes, sinful flesh that you are in. And that brings us into verse 12. So crack open Romans 8, hold it out in front of you. We'll start reading at verse 11 for the sake of the context. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, That is, in other words, just saying, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, then you are a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, sisters, we are not debtors to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. May God bless by his spirit, his own inerrant word in our midst this evening. Amen. The reality of this passage, the, the question that we seek to ask as we come to it is, on the back of the last two, cha- two, two weeks that we've been studying this, I'm justified in God's court. Now I'm walking out into the world, out, out of the courtroom, and, and I, uh, the, the, the next reality is that my being is different. I'm in the Spirit, the Spirit is in me. Now the question is, since verse 11 is true... Since I have the Holy Spirit and he has promised me that I will be sanctified, what an encouraging experience that is. God doesn't say you better be sanctified. He says you can't help but be sanctified if you have the Holy Spirit. Your sanctification is firstly God's promise to you. Secondly, it's something that you do. Isn't that great? So we say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be sanctified. Here's the promise of God. As surely as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, every child of God will experience the holy, sanctifying, power-giving experience in their life. But every responsible Christian will then ask, so what do I do? Like what now? How do I actually actualize? Or how do I really realize? Or how do I put into practice the reality that God has promised that he will sanctify me. Or we can ask this in light of verse 13, how do I kill my sin? The, 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 the Puritan John Owen, he has a tremendous book and I've recommended it to you plenty of times, an exposition of verse 13 called The Mortification of Sin. It is the, the mortify means to put to death. Uh, it's the, it could otherwise be translated the murder of sin. How to slay your sin. And he gives theological, practical, biblical uh, advice on how Christians can go about putting their sin to death. But that's our question. How do I kill my sin in light of verse 13, which says that if I put to death the deeds of the body, or as the old KJV used to say, if you mortify 
the deeds of the body, you will live. Firstly, we're going to answer that question with, with a general affirmation. The question is, how do I mortify my sin? The end, one element we have to remind ourselves is, yes, for any doubters, you do have a duty to mortify your sin. God has promised it, but we have a duty to set about putting our sin to death. And this is what we see in verse 12 and 13. Brothers, because of this, we are not indebted to the flesh to live according to the flesh. He's he's telling you that you don't owe your sinful flesh anything. You don't owe your sinful past, your sinful flesh or desires any mercy. If you would imagine a, a young, young couple and they're caught up in all kinds of sin and immorality and even crime and then she manages to get out of this abusive, dangerous relationship. She moves town, she finds Jesus, she starts going to church, she meets a godly young man, she gets engaged and then in, the, in, her, in her engagement she runs into her ex-abusive, immoral boyfriend. He sees her at a, at maybe at a, at, a, at a pub or something like that, at, a, at an RSL celebrating a friend's birthday, and he approaches her, he initiates conversation with her, he buys her a drink, and he comes up to her and starts using all the lines of, my goodness, you're, you're so beautiful. What, weren't we something? Weren't we so, don't you remember what we had? I mean, I promise you, I'm changed now. I'm, I'm a different man. I'm, I'm not who you used to be with. And, and why don't we have a drink? Why, just one more night together. Why, why don't we just have tonight together for old time's sake to celebrate what we had? Anybody who knew her old self and her old relationship would be grabbing her hand and reminding her, you don't owe him anything. This is how it always started. He'd promised you he'd change, and then you'd always end up getting hurt. This is not worth your time. You don't owe him to drink his drink. You don't owe him another moment of conversation. Get out of here. It is dangerous. That's what Paul's doing to us with our old flesh, with our sinful side. He's saying, you don't owe it anything. Do you remember what your flesh did? It was not a good friend. We went through this, the the first sermon in Romans 8. We we basically took a 20-minute walk through where your sin got you. What your flesh does to you, it condemns you under God, it gets you closer and closer to hell every day, it breaks God's law, it makes you feel guilty and feel terrible, it makes you hate God and hate yourself, it takes you towards death, it's not a good friend. You owe it nothing. The only thing it does is kill you, and he reminds us of that in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. There is no advantage whatsoever to give space or tolerance to our fleshly nature. You owe it nothing. It did nothing for you. And logically, we can take the opposite to be true. You owe God everything. If we owe the the flesh nothing because it brought us death and condemnation, we owe God everything because by His Spirit we've received Jesus who is everything that the Father could ever give and has ever promised in Jesus. Therefore, we owe the Spirit everything. We are indebted to the Spirit. Until you die, you will have the inner dialogue, the inner monologue, the lies creeping up and whispering in in the ears of your soul every day. Just a, just a little bit for me. Sunday for the Spirit. 
Monday for the flesh. Saturday night for the flesh. I'll let you go to Bible study again on Wednesday. You'll sort of cleanse your conscience, but Thursday we'll be, we'll be back at it. It's just not as dangerous if you portion out sin like this. It'll be okay. You buffet it with some Bible study and feeling bad, and it's okay to indulge. This is the constant voice in our insides until we're dead. It just doesn't stop. And so Paul is saying to us in verse 12 and 13, don't listen. Don't catch yourself listening. When you do, cold water in the face. Slap yourself across the face on the inside, not on the outside, that you'll look crazy and get locked up somewhere. But continually remind yourself, you don't owe him anything. Get out of there. There's nothing that you owe your flesh. Verse 13 goes on to say, second half of 13, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The only thing you do to the flesh to get any peace, any rest, any enjoyment is murder it. John Owen used to say that the the Christian can make no advance in his holiness, in his peace, in his strength in the spiritual realm, unless he is taking steps over the bellies of his lusts. Take the blade out, spill its guts, second, second tap into the skull, step over the corpse, wipe off the blood and keep walking. That's all we do to the flesh. Never indulge. Never go over to its place for a talk. Never consider what it has to offer. We owe it nothing, and it wants to kill us. Verse 13 is telling us, though, that vitality, enjoyment, and peace, strength, and vigor, which we could call life, can be had on the other side of slaying and slaughtering our fleshly desires. I don't think this is merely, it's not merely meaning that if you kill your sin, then you'll have spiritual life in every sense, because we already have spiritual life, or we can't even hate our fleshly desires. So what it's meaning is that you will have an increased sense of vigor, an increased clean conscience, an increased sense of our peace and enjoyment of the ways of God if we are those who are slaughtering our sin. So first, we do have the duty to do so. Let me say, secondly, you also have the identity already as somebody who does so. As a Christian, the urging is you must put your sin to death. But here's the encouragement. God has already labeled you as somebody with the identity of a sin killer. Look at verse 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is what Paul is saying. He's not merely exhorting you to kill sin. He's not actually commanding that you kill sin. He's actually arguing that you will kill sin because you're a Christian. Isn't that encouraging? You, you want to fight back and go, I'm pretty sure that's not the case in my life. I, I've, got, I've got qualms with your logic here, but he's the authority. He's speaking the word of God. He's writing with the authority of apostle, and he's giving us divine logic. You will kill sin because you are led by God. Because every child of God is led by the Spirit of God. Your identity as a child of God is somebody led by the Spirit to kill sin, then live. 
may not feel like that. You may not feel that that is an accurate representation of your lived experience. But I'm telling you, on apostolic authority, that's the name God gives you. Child of God, led by the Spirit, who kills their sin? That's the reality for every Christian. He, he says right here uh, in verse 14, everybody who's led by the Spirit are sons of God, and all those who are led by the Spirit, verse 13 tells us, are those who are putting to death the deeds of the body and therefore living. He does not in- exhort us, if you kill your sin, then you can be a child of God. He doesn't exhort us, since you're forgiven, well, if you kill your sin, then you can know you're not condemned. He doesn't say, if you put to death the deeds of the body, then you'll get the status of being children of God. He instead is exhorting us on the basis, on the gospel assumption of our identity in Christ. And says, I I know you live inconsistent with your title sometimes, Oftentimes, Paul's already confessed in chapter 7. He knows that's true of himself. Love the law of God. Unable to fulfill it. I hate my life. That was Paul's biography. Chapter 7, 21 to 25. And he's saying, I know that's the experience you see in your members. You see, I know that's the struggle you have. But I'm telling you, the objective reality is you're a child of God. The spirit leads you. You will put your sin to death. It's a part of your identity. As a pastor, I often get this as the basis of a conversation. Often these doubts, often this uh, pastoral question or concern is arising and people will say, I, I, I doubt my salvation. I, I really, I doubt it. I, I want to go to heaven. I want to believe I'm going to heaven, but I have real doubts. And, and this is pretty, pretty universal that at some point in your life as a, I'm not trying to normalize it, But at some point in your life as a Christian, you probably would have struggled with this, at least for a time. And Christians will tell me, like, I I doubt my salvation. And, And my simple question is, why is that? Tell me what happens that leads you to doubt your salvation. And and they'll say, Well, I sin way more than I wish I did. I I'm I'm grieved by how often I catch myself thinking horrible things. I I don't get as much out of the Bible reading as I wish I could. I don't pray nearly as much as I should or wish that I did. I'm, 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 I'm slow to go to God for forgiveness. Uh, and, and you wouldn't believe the list of sins that I've only just started to work on that have been sitting back there getting buried by me for a long time. I mean, this, this is what I do, Pastor. And at that very point, my encouragement to them is, you just described the leading of the Holy Spirit. Wish you prayed more. Wish you could get more out of the Bible. Hating your sin. Wishing you could delight God more. Wishing you could be less like your sinful self and more like Jesus. That is literally a resume for the leading of the Spirit in the sons of God. How how encouraging then to realize that your struggles and the worst day you've had as a Christian and the internal warfare you've got is not in fact an evidence against your being adopted. It is in fact one of the chief signs that you are adopted. The struggle on the inside between flesh and spirit is unexperienced by non-Christians. They try to conform to outward realities. They try and impress people on the outside, but they know all the time that they're faking it. 
But but if you are genuinely uh, struggling and warring against sin to a degree that you are unsatisfied with your current state, that is the sign of the leading of the Spirit. People might say, I'm I'm struggling with so much sin and, and despondency, like spiritual depression. Could it be that I'm a false convert? Could it be that I'm not a true Christian, I, I'm a Judas? And my answer is always yes. You're asking possibilities? Yes, this, this is possible. But it is also possible that if you have a sense of faith in Christ, and this is what I'll ask him, do, do, you, do you know that Jesus was God in flesh and that he died for sinners? Yes, I know. are you a sinner? I, I am. Do you believe that if you call on him, he will save you from your sin? Yes, I do. Okay. Have you called on him? Yes, I, ha- I think I have. I'd like to think I have. I, I hope I, yeah, yes, I have, but am I saved? And I say, it is possible that you're, you're lying to me now and you are a false convert, but it is at least equally as possible that you're a malnourished child of God that is not very well acquainted with the glories of the promises of the gospel that we find here in Romans 8. Often, non-Christians and Christians who don't know much of their Bible look and act the same. Just read 1 Corinthians. You'll see it. Just look at your life. Just look around here. Can I say that? Is that all right? No one's going to walk out crying. That is what Christians who are, who are unacquainted with the depths of the riches of the glories of the gospel, who don't fathom and understand and have not even come to terms with the reality of the spirit indwelling, the reality of being a new creation with a new mind, with new eyes and new spirit, if you've not come to grips with that and and the glories of what it means to be freed from the condemnation of God's wrath against your sin, then you will act like somebody who is not under those realities. You You will, as a Christian, act far too much like somebody who is still condemned, even though you're not. And so the the beauty of Romans 8 comes to you and awakens you and says, you didn't realize this, but look at what you've been sitting on the whole time. You didn't realize this, but look at the riches that are actually in your bank account. You just didn't log in and look. Your your bank teller was never savvy enough to to unlock the vault and show you what you've got. You've, You've never sat under preaching that exalts and glorifies and exposits Christ to you. God, Christ... The Spirit has so ordained that your growth in holiness directly relates to your understanding of the truth of the gospel. So, of course, if if this this information, I have the Spirit, I'm a new being, I'm not condemned, I don't have to work for God's grace. If this is new to you, then of course your, your walk will look extremely unempowered. Or if it is not entirely new but but unfamiliar at least to you, then it is not surprising that your life is not as empowered as it ought to be. And And I say much of this by way of encouragement because there is especially in reformed circles, that, that, that we like to respond to the, to the carnal, the antinomian, doesn't matter how you live, as long as you love Jesus, do what you want, you'll go to heaven. As the reformed world often responds to that, there has loomed a kind of morbid cloud of spiritual despondency in our day that leads people to think that the fruit of the spirit of fear and slavery are in fact signs of holiness. 
The fruit of the spirit of slavery, which, which we just read in our, in our passage here, verse, verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You didn't get given that spirit. Not the spirit that Jesus sent to his church. The, the spirit of fear of God's condemnation. The spirit of slavery under the law towards hell. Not the spirit we received. We received the spirit of adoption to cry to God as Father. The spirit of sons, so which we are united to Jesus. The spirit of fear creates a kind of self-obsessed, navel-gazing, J.I. Packer used to say, navel-gazing spirituality that to many untrained minds looks really holy. In fact, if you don't show the fruit of the spirit of fear, you probably don't know how bad sin is. In fact, it's probably a sign of your immaturity if you're not showing the signs of the spirit of fear. Here's what I mean. These are the signs that I see among people that are often thought of as holy and mature, which are in fact the fruit of the spirit of fear and slavery. That people avoid God when they feel guilty. They don't come to church. They're not going to jump onto the promises of, of God. They're, they've got sin they need to deal with. Questioning your salvation because of sin. As if every single person Jesus ever took to heaven was not still a sinner in some way. Doubting God's ability to get you from here to glorification. Sometimes that's elevated as a real sign of humility. You're not sure you'll make it to heaven. Praise God. You worry that God may reverse his verdict of no condemnation. I know he declared it on the basis of Jesus' blood, but maybe my sin can reverse that and one day he'll kick me out of that line of righteous, back into the line of guilty and condemned. When you believe that sin has more joy to you than righteousness, that's a part of the, the fruit of the spirit of slavery. When you feel like you need to clean up your spiritual life a bit before you can come back to God in prayer or at church is a sign of the spirit of fear. When you despair that you could ever be saved. Not me, maybe some. Uh, you don't know my sin. Surely not me. It might sound holy to some people. Wow, they really understand their sin. Or a false humili humility, and this is one of the worst, among professing Christians that let their sin go untouched and unchanged in their life because they keep on confessing their weakness and they're in this horrible victim mentality of what can I do? My flesh is so strong, which is functional blasphemy. My sin is stronger than the spirit. Stop being legalistic and asking me whether I've stopped sleeping with them. Stop being legalistic and asking me if I've stopped beating my family members. Stop asking me, you legalist, whether or not I have learned anything about the Bible in the last five years. My flesh is strong. I know this. The Bible says so. False humility. Born from the, the spirit of fear, which should not identify or mark the children of God. Rather, we should have, we do have the spirit of adoption, which manifests this kind of reality. The calling out to God as Father. Is what verse 15 said. We have the spirit of adoption, which leads us to cry out, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We call out to God on familiar terms, with familiar language or family-related language. He is our Father. 
The spirit of adoption leads us to trust that he has open arms awaiting our return. Whatever sin you've committed, whatever things you have struggled or, or been, been convicted of, you must know that the parable story of the, the father with the prodigal son is not more merciful than the true father in heaven. And that every time we go to confess sin, he stands with arms wide open. The spirit of adoption leads us to have confidence in his ability to preserve us to the time of our glorification. I'm going to get to the end of my life still holding fast to Jesus, who in fact is more tightly holding on to me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be with him in heaven. And one day I'll come back with him and get a glorious new body. He's got this. He's promised this. The spirit of adoption leads us to being led to hate our sin. Do you hate your sin? This is a sign of the spirit of adoption, that we despise our, all that which is set against our Father. The spirit of adoption helps us to delight in our God's laws. Though we can't fulfill them perfectly, we delight in what they command. And the spirit of adoption leads us to have a deep desire for a more, fa- a more realized holiness to be like your God. Do you have that? Does, does the Spirit grow in you this desire to be like God, love His law, trust His promises, and call to God as Father? The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of adoption, and that is what He does in us. <clears throat> His job is to lead you in, in prayer to the Father, but look also at verse uh, 16. He does something else. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That is that part of the Holy Spirit's job is not just to bring you into a relationship of adoption through Jesus. His job is also to make you aware of your relationship to God the Father through Jesus. That is that it's only half the Spirit's job if he engrafts you into Christ and and you'll go to heaven one day. It's also his job that using scripture, applying it to your heart through the means of grace is that he would make you aware and not just aware, not just hopeful, not just a possible or probable, but in fact a spirit level assurance that nothing can shake. Not all the world and all the enemies in it could convince me I am anything other than a child of God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's what the Spirit does to our hearts. He is the Spirit of adoption. The Spirit does not, it is not the Holy Spirit's job to make you question your salvation. It is not a sign of maturity. I'm not saying that to condemn those who struggle. I'm saying don't see it and normalize it as a, a, a gift of the Spirit. Uh, a, a fruit of the Spirit to question salvation, which is ultimately to question Christ. It's not the Spirit's job to come in and take shots at your assurance all the time. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict you of sin, which is out of alignment with your identity as an adopted son. But that is not the same thing as, conv- as, as shaking your assurance in your adoption. He does not come to to make us at peace with sin. It is by him that we put to death our sin. And yet, his job can be summed up as this, to make us live in accordance with the reality that we are children of God. For us to realize it, for us to be assured of it, and then to live in accordance with it in thoughts and behavior. 
the last good thing, but before we move to the very practical ending of how to kill your sin, the third reality is, as we ask this question, how do I do it, is to be encouraged, is to be encouraged that there will be an end to your killing sin. Do you remember the burden, the labor, the depressing end to chapter 7? Look there if you've got your Bible. Verse 21 in chapter 7. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 8 verse 17 comes back to that very theme. Who will deliver me from this body that is so weak, that is so fallen, that is so unable to perfectly obey God? It's Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead in a glorified body that assures us you will have one of these, an updated human body model just like mine on resurrection day. Every saint gets one at the same time. We die and are without a body in heaven. The saints who are alive at the moment, Jesus comes back. They get a new body the same time we get a new body. We all share in one. It's glory. Verse 17 speaks of that moment and the time going forward when it says this. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Now here's the logical foundation to where he's going. If we are children of God, which is what he said already in verse 14, if you're being led by the Spirit to put to death the sins of the flesh, then you're a child of God. Because the spirit of adoption has been put into you. Now hang on. If I'm a child of a king, does that not imply some kind of inheritance? You're, you're a jerk of a human child if every Father's Day you bring up the inheritance and wonder when your dad's going to go horizontal and give you the rest. Not so with God. He loves us to ask about our inheritance, to obsess over the inheritance, to think about our inheritance, and to thank him for our inheritance every day and every moment. He loves it when we think and think on and ask about our inheritance. What our inheritance is, is the sharing of everything Jesus gets. Jesus, by his perfect life, earned a glorious eternal life. Jesus, by his perfect obedience, earned an eternal kingdom. Jesus, by his death in our place for sin he didn't commit, earned for himself a kingdom of people in his, uh, that belonged to him. Jesus, by suffering in our place, earned the status of the firstborn son of God with an innumerable amount of younger brothers and sisters who share in his inheritance. This is what Romans 8, 17 is telling us. That if we're children of God, we can only be children of God by our relationship to our eldest brother, Jesus Christ. But if we're in him and on his accounts, then we share in his inheritance. That's good news. Here's another piece of good news about our inheritance with God. Maths just goes out the window when you start talking about the gospel. Maths, God designed it, it's great. If you're a mathematician, have fun. Your job sucks. But in the gospel, maths just implodes. Here's how it usually works. 
your dad dies and gives to his children a million bucks. God bless you. A million bucks and there's four kids, you each get one quarter of a million bucks. The more kids there are, the less of the share that you all get. This is called zero-sum game. The more you get, the less others have. The more there are of us, the less each of us receive. And the maths don't work out in the gospel. Because the more Christians come in to receive the inheritance of Christ, the more Christians, the more lost sinners place their faith in Jesus and are engrafted into him, it doesn't one iota lessen. In fact, it only increases the joy of the inheritance that we all share in. Jesus has all the inheritance of God and he shares it equally and abundantly with every single person that places their faith in him. So the rest of verse 17 says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If you're ever worried that you're going to lose your inheritance, remind yourself, Jesus can't lose his and you are legally bound up with him. He loses you, he loses his inheritance. Jesus, bound up in the covenant of God, receiving all glory, he will take you with him. You are a fellow heir with Christ. Here's the, here's the sticker. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Don't see this as a set of scales. He's not saying if you suffer, you'll make it to glory. He's not saying if you suffer, then you'll receive Christ's inheritance. He's saying, glory is down there. It's a while off yet. You are here in your Christian life. The only way from you to glory is a path, whether it's round, up, down, whatever country or direction you're coming from. Every Christian's path to glory is beset by struggles and rocky paths and attacks and suffering. And in the context of this passage tonight, the suffering we must all partake in on our way to glory is the suffering of the flesh. You're going to lose sleep over how evil you are. You're going to lose sleep over how much you offend your family members and break relationships by sheer foolishness. You're going to cry and, and want to hurt yourself at how foolish, short-sighted, outbursting you might be. You're going to be annoyed and frustrated and suffering at your own follies. And to overcome sin, you're going to go through loss of sleep to pray. Callous knees as you bend on your knees to pray. Sweating and toiling and anxiety over your soul state and the state of other Christians that you know and love and pray for. The path between me and glory is filled with suffering because of the ongoing presence of sin in my life. But the children of God have no other option. We say, bring it on. To the glory of God, we have to walk that path. And he's promised he will get us through. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's nine practical steps then, mostly summary, how to kill your sin. Maybe you came in this afternoon, you thought we were going to have just really practical, feel really bad, fix your life up, and ten steps on how to be a better Christian. No, there is no practical steps until the mindset is formed, conformed to the gospel reality of Romans 8. Now we can do some practicals. Number one, how to kill your sin. Recognize and remember and trust the good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This has to be first. Here's why. Paul said in verse 13, 
that if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, then we live. There's lots of religious and legalistic ways to try and put to death the deeds of the flesh which are not by the Spirit, and it's not counting as what he's talking about. And this is the first way. If you try and put your sin to death to avoid condemnation, you're not doing it by the Spirit. It's more sin. If you try to put your sin to death without remembering that you're already justified in Christ, or in order to achieve your justification, it's not putting it to death by the Spirit. The only way to start putting your sin to death by the Spirit is to start with Romans 8.1, which tells you you have no condemnation because you're in Jesus. The only people who can put sin to death are those who are already dead to sin. So, number one, remember, recall, trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, recognize the gift of the Spirit. This is verse 5 to 11. I have the Spirit of infinite power. There is no such thing as any Christian ever being overpowered, weak, or helpless in their fight against sin. That's a lie that enables more sin. You're not sinning because you're overpowered. You're not sinning because God didn't resource you enough. We are sinning because we're not putting into practice the power the Spirit has already given to us. Thirdly, recognize the reality of the underlying influence of sin. Verse 13 suggests this. Don't live according to it. You don't owe, you don't owe it flesh anything, but, but you need to put to death the deeds of your body. You, you will make no advances in war if you don't recognize there's an enemy. If you don't set out to know who they are, how they fight, where they hide, what they're called and what they wear. If you're not aware of the dangers of sin, the reality of sin, you try and touch that up and, 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 and allow yourself to forget the reality that sin is still in you, you, have, you stand no chance at fighting it. Remember the gospel, remember the spirit, remember your own sins still is within your body. Fourthly, remember your calling and identity. I don't want any of you ever trying to fight your sin thinking, I hope I'm a child of God. Give up. Give up right then. There's no point trying to fight your sin if you're hoping you're a child of God. Call to mind the promises of Scripture and say, I am a child of God. I am led by God. That is the only reason I have strength to fight this sin. That's why I'm trying to fight this sin. I'm a child and children put their sin to death. Next, we remember our future and destiny that we spoke about, which is our inheritance in glory. I don't want any of you trying to fight sin, hoping there might be eternal life for you. Fight sin now with an eye to the end of the days when there will no longer be any need to fight sin. Be confident in your inheritance and then act as an adopted child. Sixthly, a little bit more, more functional, a little bit more what to do in the moment. Recognize or identify or look at your sin through the lens of the law. This is exactly why God gave us the law even that after we're saved from it, we might use it to identify sin in ourselves. Read frequently the Ten Commandments. Read frequently the commandments of the, New, of the New Testament epistles where Paul says what to put to death. And Peter lists the sort of things we must avoid. Do that and, and as an x-ray, watch it highlight things in you and about you. Use the law to highlight sin. 
Seventhly, rely on the Spirit by prayer. Praying at all times in the Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 6. Relying on the Spirit by prayer is how we uh, obey verse 13, which said that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We need His help and His strength. Eighthly, kill your sin with the Word. Ephesians 6 calls the Word the sword of the Spirit. That's right. We must use the blade, the daggers, the the sharp double-edged sword of the Spirit to be doing the the excising and the cutting work against our sin. Uh, uh, David said in Psalm 119, I have hidden thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Having God's word memorized, uh, at least remembering chapters to go to and having highlighted or pointed out things or verses saved on the phone, going to the word of God that it might excise and stab our sin in times of need is all important. And then lastly, lastly, dispose of your sin by action. Do something. Is it on your phone? Restrict it or burn it. Is it on your computer? Get rid of it. Is it a relationship you're currently in? It's very simple. Call them or I'll do it for you. We're done. My soul matters. Goodbye. Click. Do something. It is so, so simple. If it's done in this order, if you start with this, you go home tonight, Just try and do something. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's impossible. You'll be depressed and back on ground zero tomorrow. But if we follow this order, trust Jesus, know we have the spirit, know that sin is a danger, trust the identity I have, know that I'm going to that destiny, resting on the word of God, highlighting it by the law, praying to the Holy Spirit. It's the easiest thing to just then do something about it. And woe on us, if knowing all of this, we still make excuses. Repentance without change is no repentance. Crying without change is no conviction. Feeling bad without doing something is not the work of the Spirit. Do something the Spirit has made you able Now, to those whose life has been filled with excuses, maybe despite an in-depth knowledge of the Bible, Or tonight, those who come and listen to this, and that sounds tremendous, but entirely out of reach and entirely out of touch of your experience, and even the spiritual side of delighting in God is unknown to you, that is because you are still in the flesh. You are not in the Spirit. You're not led by the Spirit. You're not a child of God, and you are under condemnation. To you, the call of Christ is come to me. All of these promises are laid out before you. Come to me, trust in me, call on me, and I will give them all to you as a free gift of salvation. He died for you, he rose for you. The Father punished him for you, the Father promises you. If you trust in Jesus, your case is closed, your account is clear, your soul is one, you are adopted into his family. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the awakening for the awakening call to kill our sin, for the, for the soul-stirring call to arms against our sin. But, but even more than that, Lord God, the grounding foundational promises that you have said to us that we will kill sin. We will see that tendency in our life. We will see our heart and behavior and lifestyle change to be more and more Christ-like because that's the Spirit's job even before we recognize it as ours. 
We thank you, God, for that promise. But for all those who receive such a glorious promise in the Spirit, would you then make us zealous in our own will, in our own mind, in our own soul, in our own spirit, to set about to killing the flesh that wages war against our soul. To kill the flesh, which is waging war against our brothers and sisters, the unity of the church, and the advance of your kingdom. Please, God, use your word to expose our sin and lead us into righteousness for your glorious Son's sake. We ask, Lord God, that anyone who is outside of him, still not related to him, religious but not in the spirit, legalistic but not truly righteous, trying to do good things and be impressive but still condemned under the law, I pray, Lord God, that you would give to them the simple rest of trusting in Jesus Christ and that they might experience for the first time the joy and the solace and the peace of soul that comes when one rests on Jesus for salvation. We pray all of this in the name of him who died for us, rose for us, and now reigns and rules to bring us home to glory. Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.